Chapter Two of Wired Love by Ella Cheva Thayer At the Hotel Norman Miss Natty Rogers, telegraph operator, lived, as it were, in two worlds. The one, her office, dingy and curtailed as to proportions, but from whence she could wander away through the medium of that slender telegraph wire, on a sort of electric wings, to distant cities and towns, where, although alone all day, she could not lack social intercourse, and where she could amuse herself, if she chose, by listening to, and speculating upon, the many messages of joy, or of sorrow, of business, and of pleasure, constantly going over the wire. But the other world in which Miss Rogers lived was very different, the world bounded by the four walls of a back room at Miss Betsy Kling's. It must be confessed that there are more pleasing views than sheds in greater or less degrees of dilapidation, a sickly grapevine, a line of flapping sheets, an overflowing ash-barrel, sweeter sounds than the dulcet notes of old ragmen, the serenades of musical cats, or the strains of a cornet played upon at intervals from 9pm to 12, with the evident purpose of exhausting superfluous air in the performer's lungs. Perhaps, too, there was more agreeable company possible than Miss Betsy Kling. Therefore, in the evening, Sunday and holiday, if not in the telegraphic world of Miss Rogers, loneliness and the unpleasant sensation known as blues are not uncommon. Miss Betsy Kling, who, although in reduced circumstances, boasted of certain blue blood inherited from dead and gone ancestors, who perhaps would have been surprised could they have known at this late day how very genteel they were in life, rented a flat in Hotel Norman, on the second floor, of which she let one room, not on account of the weekly emolument received therefrom, ah no, but for the sake of having someone for company. In this respect she was truly a contrast to Miss Simmonson, a hundred and seventy-five pound widow who lived in the remaining suite of that floor, and who let every room she possibly could, in order, as she frankly confessed, to make both ends meet. For a constant struggle with the ways and means whereby to live had quite annihilated any superfluous gentility Mrs. Simonson might have had, excepting only one lingering remnant that would never allow her to hang in the window one of those cheaply conspicuous placards announcing, Rooms to let. Miss Betsy Kling was a spinster, not because she liked it, but on account of circumstances over which she had no control, and her principal object in life, outside of the never-expressed but much thought of one of finding her other self, like her, astray, was to keep watch and ward over the affairs of the occupants of neighbouring flats, and see that they conducted themselves with a propriety becoming the neighbours of so very genteel and unexceptionable a person as Miss Betsy Kling. In pursuit of this occupation, she was addicted to sudden and silent appearances, much after the manner of materialised spirits, at windows opening into the hall, and doors carelessly left ajar. She was, however, afflicted with a chronic cold that somewhat interfered with her ability to become a first-class listener, on account of its producing an incessant sniffle and spasms of violent sneezing. Miss Rogers, going home to that back room of hers, found herself still pondering upon the problem sex of sea, rather to her own chagrin, when she caught her thoughts thus straying too, for she had a certain scorn of anything pertaining to trivial sentiment, and little scorn of herself 
she also had sometimes. In fact, her desires reached beyond the obtaining of the everyday commonplaces with which so many are content to fill their lives, and she possessed an ambition too dominant to allow her to be content with the dead level of life. Therefore it was that any happy hours of forgetfulness of all but the present that sometimes came in her way were often followed by others of unrest and dissatisfaction. There were certain dreams she indulged in of the future, now hopefully, now utterly disheartened, that she was so far away from their realisation. These dreams were of fame, of fame as an authoress, whether it was the true genius stirring within her, or that most unfortunate of all things, an unconquerable desire without the talent to rise above mediocrity, time alone could tell. Compelled by the failure and subsequent death of her father to support herself, or become a burden upon her mother, whose now scanty means barely sufficed for herself and two younger children, Natty chose the more independent but harder course, for she was not the kind of girl to sit down and wait for someone to come along and marry her and relieve her of the burden of self-support. So from a telegraph office in the country, where she learned the profession, she drifted to her present one in the city. To her, as yet, there was a certain fascination about telegraphy, for she had a presentiment that in time the charm would give place to monotony, more especially as, beyond a certain point, there was positively no advancement in the profession. Although knowing she could not be content to always be merely a telegraph operator, she resolved to like it as well and as long as she could, since it was the best for the present. As she lighted the gas in her room, she thought not of these things that were so often in her mind, but of sea, and then scolded herself for caring whether that distant individual was man or woman. What mattered it to a young lady who felt herself above flirtations? So there was a little scowl on her face as she turned around that did not lessen when she beheld Miss Kling standing in her doorway. Miss Rogers did not, to speak candidly, find her landlady a congenial spirit and only remained upon her premises because being there was a lesser evil than living in that most unhomelike of all places, a boarding-house. "'I thought I would make you a call,' the unwelcome visitor remarked, rubbing her nose that from constant friction had become red and shining. "'I have been lucent today. I usually run into Mrs. Simmonson's in the afternoon. She's been out since twelve o'clock. I can't make out,' musingly, "'where she should have gone.' Not that she is just the company I desire. She's never been used to anything above the common, poor soul, and will say, them rooms, but she is better than no one, and at least can appreciate in others the culture and standing she has never attained. And Miss Kling sneezed, and glanced at Natty with an expression that plainly said her lodger would do well to imitate, in this last respect, the lady in question. I am very little acquainted with Mrs. Simonson, Natty replied with a tinge of scorn curling her lip, for in truth she had little reverence for Miss Kling's blue blood. Her lodgers like her very much, I believe. At least, Quimby speaks of her in the highest terms. Quimby, repeated Miss Kling, with a sniffle of contempt. A blundering, awkward creature who is always doing or saying some shocking thing. I know that he is neither elegant nor talented, and is often very awkward, but he is honest and kind-hearted, and one is willing to overlook other deficiencies for such rare qualities, Natty replied, a little warmly. And so Mrs. Simonson feels. I am confident. Miss Kling eyed her sharply, 
not at all. Allow me, Miss Rogers, to know. Mr. Simonson endures his blunders, because, as she says, he can live on the interest of his money on a pinch, and she thinks such a lodger something of which to boast. On a pinch, indeed, added Miss Kling, with a sneeze, and giving the principal feature in her face something very like the exclamation, A very tight pinch it would be, I am thinking. Then, somewhat spitefully, she continued, But I was not aware, Miss Rogers, that you and this Quimby were so intimate. The admiration is mutual, I suppose. There is no admiration, replied Natty, with a flash of her grey eyes, inwardly indignant that any one should insinuate she admired Quimby. Honest, blundering Quimby, whom no one ever allowed a handle to his name, and was so clever, but like all clever people, such a dreadful bore. I've only met him two or three times since that evening you introduced us in the hall, so there has hardly been an opportunity for anything of that kind. You spoke so warmly, Miss Kling remarked. However, conciliatingly, I don't suppose by any means that you are in love with Quimby. You are much too sensible a young lady for such folly. Natty shrugged her shoulders, as if tired of the subject, and after a spasm of sneezing, Miss Kling continued. As you intimate, he means all right, poor fellow, and that is more than I should be willing to acknowledge regarding Mrs. Simonson's other lodger, that Mr. Norton, who calls himself an artist. I am sure I never saw anyone except a convict wear such short hair. And Miss Kling shook her head insinuatingly. From this beginning to Natty's dismay, Miss Kling proceeded to the dissection of their neighbours who lived in the suite above, Celeste Fishplate and her father. The former, Miss Kling declared, were setting her cap for Quimby. Mr. Fishplate, being an unquestionably disagreeable specimen of the genus Homo, with a somewhat startling habit, exploding in short but expressive sentences, never using more than three consecutive words. Natty naturally expected to hear him even more severely anathematized than anyone else, but to her surprise the lady conducting the conversation declared him a fine sensible man, at which Natty first stared and then smiled, as it occurred to her that Mr. Fishplate was a widower, and might it not be that Miss Kling contemplated the possibility of his becoming that other self not yet attained. Fortunately, Miss Kling did not observe her lodger's looks, so intent was she in admiration of Mr. Fishplate's fine points, and soon took her leave. After her departure, Natty changed her inky dress, and put on her hat to go out for something forgotten until now. As she stepped into the hall, a tall young man with extremely long arms and legs and mouth, that although shaded, by a faint outline of a moustache, invariably suggested an alligator, opened the door of Mrs. Simonson's rooms opposite, and seeing Natty, started back in a sort of nervous bashfulness. Recovering himself, he then darted out with such impetuosity that his foot caught in a rug. He fell, and went headlong downstairs, dragging with him a fire-bucket, at which he clutched in a vain effort to save himself, the two jointly making a noise that echoed through the silent halls, and brought out the inhabitants of the rooms in alarm. "'What is it? Is anyone killed?' shrieked from above, a voice recognisable as that of Celeste Fishplate, two names that could never, by any possibility, sound harmonious. "'What is the matter now?' screamed Miss Kling, appearing at her door with the query. "'Have you hurt yourself?' Natty asked, as she went down to see where the hero of the catastrophe sat on the bottom stair 
ruefully rubbing his elbow, but who now picked up his hat and the fire bucket and rose to explain. It's nothing, nothing at all, you know, he said, looking upward and bowing to the voices. I caught my foot in the rug and... Did you tear the rug? Here anxiously interrupted the listening Mrs. Simonson, suddenly appearing at the banisters. Not that she felt for her lodger less, but for the rug more. A distinction arising from that constant struggle with the ways and means. Oh no, I, I assure you, there was no damage done to the rug or fire bucket. The victim responded reassuringly and in perfect good faith. Or myself, he added modestly, as if the latter was scarce worth speaking of. Ah, I'm used to it, you know, reverting to his usual expression in accidents of all descriptions. I declare I don't know what you'll do next, muttered Mrs. Simonson, wishing to examine the rug. I think you must be in love, Quimby. An assertion that caused Miss Kling to give vent to a contemptuous humph, and awakened in its subject the most excruciating embarrassment. The poor fellow glanced at Natty, blushed, perspired, and frantically clutching at the fire bucket, stammered a protest. No, really, I, I, now, I'm mistaken, you know. But people who are in love are always absent-minded, persisted Celeste with another giggle. So it was useless to... But exactly what was useless did not appear, as at this point a stentorian voice, the voice of Miss Kling's fine, sensible man, roared, Enough! At which, to Quimby's relief, Celeste, always in mortal fear of her father, hastily withdrew. Not so Miss Kling. She silently waited to see if Natty and Quimby would go out together, and was rewarded by hearing the latter ask, as Natty made a movement towards the door. May I, might I be so bold as to, as to ask to be your escort? I should be pleased, Natty answered, adding with a mischievous glance, but in a low tone aware of the listening ears above. That is, if you will consent to dispense with the fire bucket. Quimby started, and dropping the article in question, as if it had suddenly turned red-hot, ejaculated. Bless my soul, really, I beg pardon, I'm sure. Then, bashfully offering his arm, they went out, while Miss Kling balefully shook her head. So Celeste will insist upon it that you are in love, because you tripped and fell downstairs, Natty said, by way of opening a conversation as they walked along, a remark that did not tend to lessen his evident disquietude. And having now no fire-bucket, he clutched at his necktie, twirling it all awry, not at all to the improvement of his personal appearance, as he replied, Oh, really, you know, it's no matter. I, I, I'm used to it, you know. Used to falling in love? queried Natty with raised eyebrows. No, no, the other, you know, that is gasped Quimby, hopelessly lost to a substantive. I mean, it's a mistake, you know. Then, with a desperate rush away from the embarrassing subject, did you know uh, we, that is, Mrs. Simonson, was going to have a new lodger? No, is she? asked Natty. Yes, a young lady coming tomorrow, a uh, sort of an actress. You are prima donna, you know, a Miss Archer. If you and she should happen to like each other, it would be pleasant for you, uh, wouldn't it? asked Quimby eagerly with a devout hope such might be, for then should he not be a gainer by seeing more often the young lady by his side, whose grey eyes had already made havoc in his honest and susceptible heart. It would be pleasant, acquiesced Natty, in utter unconsciousness of Quimby's selfish hidden thought. But I am lonely sometimes. Miss Kling is not, not— Oh, certainly, of course not, Quimby responded sympathetically and understandingly, 
as Natty hesitated for a word that would express her meaning. They never are very adaptable, old maids, you know. But it isn't because they are unmarried, said Natty, perhaps feeling called upon to defend her future self, but because they were born so. Exactly. You know, that's why no fellow ever marries them, said Quimby with a glance of bashful admiration at his companion. Natty laughed. And this Miss Archer, did you say she was a prima donna? she questioned. Yes, that is a sort of kind of one, or going to be, or some way musical or theatrical, you know, was Quimby's lucid reply. I'll make a point to, to introduce you, if you'll allow me that pleasure. Certainly, responded Natty, and added, I shall be quite rich for me and acquaintances soon, if I continue as I have begun. I made a new one on the wire today. Or the, I beg pardon, on the what? asked Quimby, with visions of tightropes flashing through his mind. On the wire, repeated Natty, to whom the phrase was so common that it never occurred to her as needing any explanation. Oh, said the puzzled Quimby, not at all comprehending, but unwilling to confess his ignorance. Worst of it is, I don't know the sex of my new friend, which makes it a little awkward, continued Natty. Quimby stared. Don't, I beg pardon, don't know her, his, sex, he repeated, with wide-open eyes. No, it was on the wire, you know. Again, explained Natty, privately thinking him unusually stupid. About seventy miles away. We first quarrelled, and then had a pleasant talk. Talk? Seventy miles? faltered the perplexed Quimby, then brightening. Oh, I see, a telephone, you know. Oh, indeed, replied Natty, laughing at his incomprehensibility. We don't need telephones. We can talk without. Did you not know that? And what is better, no one but those who understand our language can know what we say. Exactly, answered Quimby, relapsing again into wonder. Exactly on the wire. We talk in a language of dots and dashes that even Miss Kling might listen to in vain. And you know, she went on confidentially, somehow I am very much interested in my new friend. I wish I knew. It's so awkward, as I said, but I really think it's a gentleman. Exactly, exactly so, responded Quimby somewhat dejectedly, and during the remainder of their walk he was very much harassed in his mind over this interest Natty confessed in her new friend, on the wire, who would appear as a tightrope performer to his perturbed imagination, and he felt in his inmost heart that it would be a great relief to his mind if this mysterious person should prove a lady, even though, if a gentleman, he was many miles away. For Quimby, with all his obtusity, had an inkling of the power of mystery, and was already far enough on the road to love, to be jealous. Of these thoughts, Natty was of course wholly unaware, and chatted gaily, now of the distant sea, and now of the coming Miss Archer, to her somewhat abstracted but always devoted companion. 